you'd be killing a podcast. That's not first degree murder. In fact, it's not murder at all. In fact, I don't know what it is. Uh, sure. 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 That's what you wanted to do? I don't know. I'm There's, not saying it's the best line in the movie, but... I like the, the monologue by the bald guy uh, at the chess place. Where he's kind of like, you know, we are mediocrity, right? Where he's talking about that. That's really good. And you could do the oh, voice you want, and everything. Uh, yeah, yeah. You have my sympathies then. You have yeah. not yet learned that in this life you have to be like everyone else. The perfect podcast. No better, no worse. Uh, that, exactly. I love that. That guy's great. Yeah. Who's who's that guy? That guy, look, I'm sure we're going to get into it, David. That guy was a a true former wrestler who Kubrick met through chess circles. Yeah, he's his name is. Yeah, we'll talk about him. To he's exactly Cola. what that character is. Right. It's just funny because then I also think of the Ed Wood guy with uh, Tor Johnson, right? Who kind of yes. is the same vibe. A Swedish he's, guy he's, with a bald head. He's Tor adjacent. He's very Tor adjacent. Right. Look, I want to get into it. This is Blank Check with Griffin and David. I'm Griffin. I'm David. And it's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have massive success early on in their careers and are given a series of blank checks to make whatever crazy passion projects they want. And sometimes those checks clear. And sometimes they bounce. Baby. Mm. Uh, this is a miniseries on the films of Stanley Cooper. Heard of him? It's called Pod's Widecast. And in many ways, I think he is a guy who uh, kind of defines the idea in most people's minds of a blank check career, Right. Because there are very few films at the beginning where he's sort of scrapping it out. And then from then on out, it is, hey, I set the terms. I work when I want to. I make exactly what I want at the exact size and budget and freedom I want. And you can go screw. Yeah, I think I would say the only difference is he's right. He's just very unique in the control he exerted. We'll talk about this plenty. Uh, That's I'm saying well, it's but, the ultimate. It's the ultimate. Right. It's the sort of the thing people would aspire to or whatever. Right. When they right. want a blank check career, they're going, I wish I had fucking kubrick levels of freedom i guess so what a ridiculous thing to say only kubrick gets that of course but but many fools aspire to it right look i want to bring our guest in bring him he in. is he's such a professional that not only has he not spoken yet and i don't mean to call him out for this he's he's been hitting that mute button on and off whenever there's a noise that might disrupt the audio he's trying to give us the cleanest track possible because this guy He's he's a comedian. He's an actor. He's a writer. But I think it's very important to say he joins a very, very small club in the history of Blank Check mm. guest David. Okay. Who are lead roles in previously covered Blank Check movies. That's true. In a wonderful film, in fact. We are speaking to the man who brought to life Remy the Rat and Ratatouille, one of our all-time favorite movies. And he's got a new movie coming out called I Love My Dad. Patton Oswalt, thank you for being on the podcast. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on to talk about Kubrick's The Killing. Look, there was there was some uh, there was a lot of uh, back and forth to make this happen, and in mm. it there was some confusion, and then there was a hail mary pass to throw the killing at you because I thought I had remembered you talking about this movie in the past. Oh yeah, I, I I've seen this movie. Um, Many times in theaters, uh, rewatched it yesterday morning just to be fresh. I mean, it's a, it's just a fun movie to watch in terms of oh, he, he, let's let's see how he's setting all of this up. You know, you, you, it 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 bears up to repeated viewings. It does. It's not a difficult rewatch at all. Yeah. I, I've seen the killing like three times, and anytime you put it on, two minutes in, 
You're just like, oh yeah, this is coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is great. Um, the killing. We're talking about the killing, Griffin. You know, why is it called the killing? I guess we'll talk about it. But but that's my maybe my only note with the killing. I don't know if it's a great title. I mean, it's a it's it's arresting, but like. That's not really what's going on in this movie, right? I don't you could know. call it, you could call it the killing of a sacred horse. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh like the book is called the book had a different uh, a clean break, right? That's what yeah, it's called. Clean break. Yeah. Okay. That's you know that's a pretty good title. I guess that's not like the most thrilling title in the world. Well, this is okay. Look, we're gonna crack open the dossier. JJ Birch, our researcher, yeah, yeah, yeah. put together a lot of stuff uh, very quickly for this movie. But one of the things, Pat, and I think that might be of specific interest to you, mm-hmm. one of the working titles for this film that he pulled up, because you know, well, with a lot of these noir films, oh, you know, uh, they're picking names out of the hat, right? The studios, yeah. right? It's that's seventy percent of whether you're getting a green light or not, right? Give me a title that I can slap on a poster. Yeah, to sell. the whole noir crime genre is. What are the words we can slap on a poster that'll get people to stop and come and look at it? Exactly. It doesn't even have to have anything to do with the plot. We don't care. Right. Let's go. Right. So if you have a good title, they might green light you on that alone. Yeah. And if you have a bad title, they're going to make you change it three weeks before the movie oh, comes hell out yeah, to yeah. something. Of course they will. Whether or not it has anything to do with the movie. Clean Break was the name of the book. But one of the titles, one of the working titles that apparently was close to happening for this movie, I don't know if you know this, was Bed of Fear. <laughs> oh my lord okay well. now Patton one, one of my favorite routines of yours of all time <laughs> is your extended riff on deathbed the bed that eats people yep what you call at the time I think the worst movie you'd ever seen well no at the time I had not seen it I'd only heard of it because it had just come out on DVD I have since did a screening of it at the Alamo Draft House like we're all going to experience it together it was more about the idea that a guy it was the concept for me that a guy came up with the idea for a movie about a bed that is possessed and eats people and he finished the script and he finished the movie. Right. And all I can think of are all of the projects I've started and either given up on or they just didn't go anywhere. <laughs> and that one made it all the way through. That is insane to me. At no point did he crumple it up and go, that's stupid. Right. No, Come no, on. no we're, that, that's we're doing dumb. this. Right. Right. Well, it's my my two favorite parts of the bit are you saying, was he either just confident the entire time or was there the moment where the doubt hit him and he worked through it? Either way is bad for me. Either way is very, <laughs> right. it, it, it it speaks badly of, of me and my follow through. If, if a guy either had 100% confidence or you, like you said, had that crippling doubt as you should have if you're working on something called deathbed, Absolutely. Like, no, I'm, I'm God damn it. I'm finishing this. My my single favorite detail on that, though, and, and not to brag, but I uh, have spent uh, about 15 years working on some of the worst independent films of all time. Just terrible projects that never should have existed. And you go into it post that guy writing that script. The amount of work and time and hours and sacrifice that everyone else has to commit to make that vision of reality. Yeah. If you're on the crew of Bed of Fear, and it's the Stanley Kubrick guy's third movie, do you think you go, this this thing's going to be a piece of junk? Do you think Bed of Fear is a title that would instill doubt in a cast and crew versus The Killing, where you're just like, I don't know, it's called The Killing, whatever. Bed of Fear, the problem with Bed of Fear is the ter- the word bed is in there. Yeah. And, and just, <laughs> it, there's That just takes away any tension and excitement, like... You know, I'm sleeping. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, bed, I should go home. Yeah, like sofa of terror. Like, well, no, there's a sofa. 
I'm taking a nap. You've taken away all the tension. You can't have bed in the title. Bed of Fear also does not have much to do with this movie. It would, would also be somewhat misleading, more misleading than The Killing. This movie does at least have murder in it. Or death, at least. And also The Killing, there's, there's an overall, like, this is what drives all these characters, the idea of, like, we're right. going to make a killing here. This is going to be a yes. killing. And, yes. and that, is, that is, like, it's, it's like a double meaning. The, the title is almost the motivation for all the right. characters right there. You're right. I'm mm. convinced. You're right. It's a good title. I mean, also, yeah. Bed of Fear is a terrible title. So that's, you know, that's fine. They, yeah. they, yeah, Clean, Clean Break is fine. Clean Break is what they want to do, obviously. It's, it's the one last job movie. They're all going to, or at least Johnny Clay is going to, you know, he's going to make a clean break. I get but it. But Killing works on a marquee. I mean, it's, it's sort of what we talked about with the Evil Dead, where you're just like, I can't believe no one thought to put those words in that order. Yeah. On a poster before, and the killing has been used so many times since this movie as a title. It's and now TV just one of those shows. titles that gets recirculated. Right, right, right. right. It's just nonstop. Yeah. It is striking to just put those two words, the killing. Tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great move. Better the guy, better than Bed of Fear. Ooh. I made Bed of Fear. Don't you know who I am? <laughs> I directed Bed of Bed Fear. Bed of Fear. David, I love how much uh, this movie comes out of uh, Kubrick's chess life in multiple mm -hmm. ways um you know obviously chess is a bit of a recurring motif for kubrick obviously it's in lots of his movies but um but he he's a big chess nerd uh especially in his younger years so um let me see i'm, I'm looking at some of this sort of context here obviously kubrick uh worked at what look magazine that's what it called uh he was a photographer mm -hmm. right he'd done fear and desire and killer's kiss which are you know, not features he's proud of particularly, right? Like this is probably the first movie Kubrick respects in his filmography, right? Mm. Yeah. I would say yeah, like right. he, he he talks pretty, you know, derisively about the first two movies. I don't know what you guys think of that. Fear I, you know. and Desire, he kind of disowned as not a film for right. a while. And Killer's, Killer's Kiss, Kiss he's sort of treated as his warm-up. And this is kind of the first real film. Yeah, Killer's, right? Killer's Kiss is kind of cool. I, I like that. It's a fun time. Killer's Kiss yeah. The stuff good. with the yeah. mannequins, and it's just great imagery. I don't know what he's you know worried about. It, it, it works. Also, we've covered far more amateurish first films than Fear and Desire. Right. I think it just speaks to Kubrick's sort of perfectionism that, like, Christopher Nolan doesn't disown following, even though that's a rough draft movie. Yeah. You know? Sure. No, 100%. But, uh, but so um, this movie is produced by James B. Harris. Uh, Alexander Singer is a guy he knows who introduces him to Stanley Kubrick. And um, they set up Harris Kubrick pictures on 57th Street in New York. Harris claims he's the one who went to a bookstore around the corner and bought Clean Break. Kubrick says the opposite. He, but, but I just the thing I want to tie back in here is that uh, Harris and Kubrick apparently really bonded over doing Washington Square Park yes. chess. Uh, that was the, the formation of their relationship. Yeah. Um. But uh, Kubrick, I guess, had loved um the Killer Inside Me, which is another Jim Thompson, which is a Jim Thompson book. Jim Thompson writes this mm -hmm. uh, movie, although he's actually yeah. only credited for the quote unquote dialogue. Um. But so I guess like Kubrick kicks him the book uh, and says, do you want to write a screenplay based on this? And apparently Jim Thompson had never written a screenplay before. He wrote the whole thing on legal pads, basically. And the screenplay was like, you know, you had to like flip it topside rather than the usual left to right. <laughs> 
Uh, so Kubrick, I guess, is the one who turns it into a screenplay, which is why he gets the credit. But what you know, mm-hmm. like, but and but whatever. Him and Jim Thompson are cool. Jim Thompson writes Paths of Glory. Like Jim Thompson's like a a big early Kubrick guy. I've never yeah. read The Killer Inside Me. I saw the movie, you know, the whatever from ten years ago. Uh, well, there's two versions. There's two versions. Which there's the the Stacy Keach version. Yeah. And then there's the one that came out with um the, with Casey was, Affleck, right? Oh like, yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. was you know, it was like one of those sort of. Uh, you you can you can't believe how you know intense this movie is. Movies, right? You know, like oh, it's so horrifying and chilling. I never saw the Stacey Keach version, and yeah. I've never read the book. I know the book is sort of a a sort of crime classic, like because it's, yeah. it's just so blistering. Have you guys read The Killer Inside Me? I read it in in high school, and I don't remember sure. a lot of it. I just do remember it feels immediately claustrophobic. I am slammed inside of this the shell of a person and now i have to walk around with this psychopath basically for a whole novel that is an incredible way of describing i think the magic juice of most great noir of this period is just like these quick and dirty you're just immediately slammed into an incredibly claustrophobic and bleak worldview and it's just like a fucking kettle boiling of when is this going to pop and how do i stay in here yeah exactly but this book they call up to try and get the rights. This is the one thing I forgot. And they were like, well, Frank Sinatra is like negotiating with us right now. And they were like, we'll give you $10,000 right away. So this was almost a Sinatra picture. Sinatra wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. Which, wow. I mean, it would probably be pretty cool. I mean, it's sort well, of a... Well, Dirty Harry was almost a Sinatra picture. And and wasn't Die Hard as well? Wasn't, isn't that a thing? Well, no. He, he plays the same... It's the same character from The Detective. That's what that's right. Die Hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But right. they never offered Die Hard to Sinatra. They did offer Dirty Harry to Sinatra when it was called mm-hmm. Dead Right. right. And um, it was going to be Sinatra as Harry Callahan. I, I just, I, I need to film nerd correct you. Oh. He was obviously never going to do it. Mm-hmm. But something in the deal for when Sinatra had bought the rights to the detective gave him right of first refusal on any of the follow-ups. Wow. So even when they set up Die Hard at Fox and had McTiernan and everything, they had to go to Sinatra and go like, obviously no, right? And he was like, yeah, no. But they did have to, before they could offer it to anyone else, say like, you don't want to play 80-year-old John McClane, do you? Let me tell you something, baby. These knees don't, <laughs> these knees don't work like they used to. I just like imagining whoever the Fox exec was who was like, hey, uh, Frank, I'm just calling so you can tell me to fuck off. Do you want to do a movie called Die Hard? Fuck off. Okay, thank you. My job's done. Uh, So Kubrick, they write the screenplay with Jim Thompson. They go to United Artists and United Artists is like, give us an actor. Uh, Jack Palance is someone they ask. Uh, And then Sterling Hayden gets into the mix he likes the script. They bring him aboard. Apparently, United Artists wanted Victor Mature. Oh, uh, they were they were mad about Sterling <laughs> Hayden. They were like, oh, you know, yeah, oh, I agree. No, no, yeah. no, not a positive. You you made you made a, a, a icky poo poo smell uh, face <laughs> to Victor Mature. I, I can think of no better way to describe. I mean, it. look, I I don't hate Victor Mature. He's in one of my favorite noirs of all time. I wake up screaming, but he's not the best part of it. Mm. He just there's just something about Victor Mature just for me as an actor that is that weird little like that weird little smile of his, and it just he, he has oh, like the, the the widow's peak kind of thing. He, he's 
He looks like an entertainer, you know, right? I don't yeah, know how else to describe exactly. it. Yeah. He looks like he should be like, who's got a birthday tonight? Who's doing it? <laughs> who's got a wedding in it? Like, he should be bringing on the acts. I just don't, I don't buy him as a lead actor, even though he's, he's, you know, um, great. And he's in Kiss of Death. He's in Kiss I Wake Up Death. Screaming. But, right. but, yeah, but I, I just, uh, David Thompson called him an uninhibited creature of the naive. That's, well, that's a pretty good. That's a pretty good line. Sterling um, Hayden has that that sort of poetry and that oh, pathos to him. Yeah, I mean, Sterling Hayden is it's on a you know he's he's a wonderful choice, but oh. I can see him being an unsexy one. I guess like I I don't know that that he was the kind of star that United Artists is really. I mean, he had just been in like Johnny Guitar uh, yep. a couple years ago. He's in Crime Wave, obviously. That's where he plays Detective Sims. You know, oh, shout hell out yeah. to me. Hell God, yeah. he's so good in that. Uh, apparently, he was in a movie in 1955 called Top Gun. Well, it was a western. Um, but well. so, so they 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 convince United Artists. You know, let us have Sterling Hayden. United Artists puts up about 200 grand. The budget went over right. to about 330. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harris had to kick in some of his own money at the end of the day. Because that was the thing, was like United right. Artists said, if you can get us a star, we'll give you the budget for this. And when they come back with Sterling Hayden, they're like, we'll give you half the budget yeah, for this. Right, exactly. That's exactly how much we'll give you. Yep. I, there's a quote here, I like uh, two quotes. Uh, uh, James Harris said, I give Stanley a free hand to create and he leaves the money problems to me, right? right? Which I think this relationship defines Kubrick's approach to filmmaking from here on out. Yeah. Like Harris for this movie and the next two creates the dynamic that Kubrick then extends to the studios with every other picture he makes, which is just like, you got to back the fuck off. Yeah. And Harris sort of it saw in this guy the ability if he was given that sort of freedom and and got him used to that. The funny quote that accompanies this is Kubrick at the time saying, we want to make good movies and make them cheap. The two are not incompatible. So Kubrick's idea at this point is, oh, I know what I do. I'm the guy who can make a movie with complete freedom as long as the budget is low. And then by the end of his relationship with Harris, he's like, but what if the budget isn't low? <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, I actually could do a lot more with more budget. I mean, yeah, this movie is compared. United Artists sort of compares it to Marty, which is around the same time where the time where they're like, we can make low budget pictures that are a pictures that have like an a mm-hmm. you know picture quality. I guess is what they're trying yes. to say. Uh, Kubrick wanted to shoot this movie himself, but Union Rules didn't let him do that, so he brings in Lucy and Ballard. Uh, but they fought all the time. And yep. one of the biggest things was the those racetrack uh, images that are, you know, right at the start of the movie. And they're, you know, all, uh, Kubrick was like, I want to go to like the horses and I want to get some like sort of verite footage. I want to get some like documentary stuff. And Lucien Ballard is like, no, I work in like studio sets with like lights. I don't know what I like. I don't know how that works, basically. Like, you know, it's it's. He's he's trying to sort of solve a problem that the Hollywood studio system doesn't really understand, I guess. Yeah, but there's like but there is a documentary feel to some of the early scenes. It reminds me of yeah. you know, a lot of Kubrick stuff like Day of the Fight and a lot of his Look magazine stuff where he got I mean, it looks like he either convinced Lucian or went behind Lucian's back and went down and got stuff. He went behind his back. That is what he uh he gets Alexander Singer, who's the associate producer on this movie, who's one of Harris's guys, who had worked shooting documentary stuff during the Korean War when he was like in the service. Wow. And he gives him a little AMO camera. IMO camera? IMO, I think. 
uh, and says, just like, go to the tracks and shoot me some stuff. And that stuff is in the movie, uh, which Kubrick just kind of. So that's, you know, right. You know, that's a sign of him kind of like, you know, making making something out of nothing. Yep. It, it is funny to me that, like, yes, he's got this background as a photojournalist, right? Fear and Desire feels very documentary-esque. Mm. And then this movie has elements of it. And you look at the Variety review from the time, and they almost lead with, like, this movie has this striking documentary style. Like, that was pretty radical at the time. And then from here on out, every successive movie, Kubrick's going to become more controlled, more creating his own ecosystem, right. you know? Like, by the time you get to Eyes Wide Shut and he has no interest in capturing reality as it exists on the street and is building his own fake New York. It is weird how, yeah, this guy that one of his early strengths was that was the documentary feel to his stuff. Yeah. Even in stuff like it's something as big as Strange Love that feels very documentary style. And then you're right. He just goes into artifice and never right. looks back. Yeah, he d- just right. You don't think of him as like a sort of verite guy. Um the other thing was that Kubrick wanted to use a really wide lens and Ballard was like, that's going to distort the image. That's going to give it this kind of fisheye thing, which Kubrick was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Like, yeah, dipshit. <laughs> that's a cool idea. Like, right. Sounds like, fucking this good. This is a, a crime story. I want to get into that. And, you know, they, 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 so much of the, the stuff from the set of this movie is him fighting with Lucy and Ballard over wow. lens sizes and things like that, you know, um, Lucy Ballard apparently at the time was married to Merle Oberon. Wow. So like this is a, you know, a, a, a Hollywood guy. Like this is who looks, you look him up, he's a, a hottie. Lucy Ballard, he's a good looking <laughs> guy. He's got a strong brow. He worked with Joseph von mm. Sternberg and he's Sam Peckinpah and all these guys. And uh, as, as Singer puts it, like Kubrick looked like a Bronx kid who was wiping his nose on his sleeve. Like, I mean, it's sort of hard to imagine baby Kubrick because you, I feel like the image you have of the guy is more the sort of like bespectacled, bearded older guy, right? You know, but uh, well, the the bearded film wizard, but right, right now, of, he's yeah, he's a nasally kid from the Bronx that's just right. like, I want to make movies, right? <laughs> The dark-eyed intensity, is, it doesn't get there until later. He just looks like a fucking dork at this point. He looks yeah, like me. Yeah. <laughs> They're fighting about putting a damn, you know, a camera on a dolly track for a shot, and Stanley says, Lucian, you either move that camera and put it where it has to be to use a 25 millimeter, or you get off the set and you never come back. And Lucian, there's just silence, and then Lucian, like, goes and does, you know, goes and puts the camera where it's supposed to be. So... Whatever. He wins the big battle with the like big shot cameraman. All the other stories are just like that he's this like weird little introvert, you know, Kubrick. Like he, he does not strike you as a bossy guy in any other way. Um, when you're but obviously the sort of perfectionist master craftsman stuff is coming up, right? Yeah, but Kubrick could, you know, you've seen that footage on The Shining where he's just bullying Shelley yeah. Duvall. I, I don't. I don't think he was a very. Ultimately, I don't think he was a really good guy. I don't think he's nice. No, and I think he. I think he might have been like. I don't know about misanthropic, uh, but I just don't think he. I, I. I. There's an unspoken God. I could make these movies exactly the way I want if there wasn't all these dumb people, like <laughs> right. doing stuff. <laughs> these actors who need to. to like go to the bathroom and eat food. It just gets in the way of what I'm trying to do. <laughs> It makes perfect sense that like AI was the thing he was working towards in his yeah, mind. Of where course. it's like one of these days we're going to get this fucking robot. Just, yeah. Robot actors. Yeah. 
But but it's also just so funny to consider, like, at a certain point, even if he does, he is still aggressive in how he gets there. At a certain point, his reputation is it looms so large that people know what they're signing up for, right? And they understand, I'm going to totally have to defer to everything Kubrick wants. And at this point, it's like, he's never been described as someone who is... Uh, I don't know, particularly insightful in knowing how to communicate with people to get what he wants outside of just demanding it. So if you're working with young twerpy Kubrick, it's like, what are those conversations like where he's just like, fuck yeah. you, do it? Yeah, but at the same time, like, um, you know, there are, you're, you're right, there there was that feeling of, oh, I've signed up for a Kubrick film. It felt, felt a lot of times it felt like people did Kubrick films more to get the story than to get than to be in a movie. Like to go, oh, I've worked with. Let me tell you my Kubrick story. And there were some actors um, that weren't enchanted by him at all. Harvey Keitel famously told him to go fuck himself on the right, set of Eyes fired. Wide Shut when he made him a. Well, I, it, some people say he got fired. Some people say he just quit. But he basically right, right. Kubrick made him walk through a door twenty seven times, and he just went, <laughs> right. "Hey, you're fucking crazy," and just like left. <laughs> Like, like, did that thing. It was almost like the weird, leave, leave it to Harvey Keitel to, like, just see through all the glamour and all the legend and go, oh, you're just fucking crazy. You're just crazy, and you lucked into making people, someone money, and they keep throwing money at you. But you're crazy. <laughs> well, it's like that incredible clip of Christopher Plummer talking about working with Malik on The New World. And he's like, I memorized this monologue and you're filming a fucking bird. <laughs> like, I'm never doing this ever again. Like, I don't care. Shoot the actor saying the thing. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? It's, oh, my God. Yeah, some of these guys. They get, but, but I, right. I, I, I'm so, I'm just, as a, as a working actor, I'm so over two things. I'm over the method. I hate the method. And I hate mm. the auteur theory. They Those are the two things that get in the way of people actually doing work and creating art because the method puts 10 times more attention on the actor, whereas acting is you're supposed to just inhabit a role and, and not call attention to all your actorly bullshit. And then auteurism is all about, I just want to be a dick. I just want to be a dick right. to people and because I have to be a tortured artist. Someone, I forgot who pointed this out. I think it was... Bronson Pinchot of all people is like, you ever notice how whenever someone's in a method performance, they're always um like and they're and they're acting like an asshole, like, well, Mike Carrot, I'm playing this asshole, so I gotta right, stay they, They're never like, method is like a nice man who gives people candy or whatever. Yes, what I was getting at. Yes, the um, they never are <laughs> sorry, Pat. um that's quite all right. I, I, um I think, you know, Kubrick and Daniel Day Lewis loom too large as those two examples. And Daniel Day Lewis, who is notoriously a very nice person and doesn't do that thing where he's like a fucking asshole to people on set just because he's playing right, an asshole. Right. Sure. Uh, but just stays in his his energy, you know? Right. And I, I think too many people are like, well, I'm doing the Kubrick thing or the Daniel Day Lewis thing. And it's like, first off, you're not fucking Kubrick or Daniel Day Lewis. And by the way, everyone who works with Daniel Day Lewis says he's nice. And everyone who works with Kubrick said he was an asshole, even if yeah. they were happy with how the movie turned out. Um, I, there's a thing you said in some random interview that I always think about, Patton, uh, that, that speaks to this sort of anti-method preciousness. You were on some podcast, I think, talking about movies you had seen recently, and it was when Blue Valentine came out. And you talked about how good uh, Michelle Williams and Ryan Gosling were in that film. Yeah. And the way you described it was you said they're just part of this great generation of young actors who just fucking crack open the script 
and take out their highlighter and do the work. Yeah, they, they, they just trust that the work is going to create something amazing rather than I want to create, this is the Ryan Gosling show or this is the Michelle Williams biography. And that, like, no, I'm here to serve the script. And there's that, yeah, there is a generation of actors, the ones that are coming up now, I think, are really amazing um, in, in that they just, let's do the goddamn work and make it amazing. And we don't need to be, we don't need to be precious assholes about it, you know? Right. And that's a movie where like they fucking lived in a house together for a month, improvising backstory and all this shit. But there was none of that sort of fl- self-flagellation, like, no, look the at how much we suffered for this. Self-important kind of press tour stuff afterwards, right? Where it's like, you know, I forgot who I was or, you know, the, this, you know, the, the, right. the whole mythos that comes around it, which is the problem with the auteur stuff that you're saying, Patton, as well. It's like it becomes this mythos that just kind of makes you like get whatever gives you uh, a, a license to act like a king or a god on set, yeah. I assume, right? It's like, I well, it all flows, you know, the buck stops here, right? So whatever I do is all part of the creative process or what I assume is sort of the Yeah, vibe. but a lot of, but a lot of times it's anti-creativity because they only want everything coming from them. The idea right, of so a collaboration, they're so worried that after the fact, someone will go, well, that was my idea. You know, as long as the movie's good, I don't care who comes up with what idea as long as it all works. But there are so many people that are like, no, I am making a movie. The rest of you are not. All the ideas are coming from me. You have, you know, no one contributes anything to this. And they want it to be theirs so badly. And it's like, they don't, you know, it's, it's the William Goldman thing. Everybody gets together and everybody makes a movie. Uh, that and that's sort of again, it's kind of from the Kubrick perspective is what's interesting about the killing. It's like they shot this in twenty days. He's still fairly new to Hollywood. This is not the kind of thing where obviously, yes, he wins a fight over a lens with handsome, handsome Lucian Ballard, but like he's <laughs> he's not able to, you know, be no. A and, petty and on the flip here. side, yeah. On the flip side, Patton, and you tweeted about this, but the the Timothy Carey performance is someone doing something he absolutely does not want that Kubrick was upset about, and Carey was fucking right. Yeah. And it also, by the way, it, it shows you how great Timothy Carey is on screen that Kubrick worked with him again after all of the tension that came out of this movie. And I remember I went to a screening of Crime Wave, this is years ago, and Andre de Toth, the director, was there and afterwards spoke and people were, of course, asking about Tim Carey. You know, what was Tim Carey like? So first, Andre de Toth does like a joke. And he says, well, once you took a straitjacket off, he was fine. Everyone, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and then, we, we, then they, they asked a few more questions. And then in the middle of answering another question, he just stopped and went, and let me be clear, Timothy Carey was fucking crazy. <laughs> like, like, just in case that joke, I don't want you thinking I was being right. Like, we weren't like, being that cute. That guy was right? out of his fucking mind. But American Klaus Kinski. Yes, yeah. exactly. But, I, but I feel like there was an uns- there was like a whisper network among directors going, "Yeah, look, Timothy Carey is going to want to make you jump off a fucking bridge, but the stuff that you get on film is so worth it." He is just amazing. We were talking about how obviously how Coppola uses Sterling Hayden. He wanted Timothy Carey too, right? He wanted Timothy Carey to play Luca Brasi in The Godfather, which makes sense. Like, he's scary looking. Well, okay, I'll tell you another story. I was at, um, uh, I was, I hosted a, a editor's award show and I got to meet Martin Scorsese backstage. So all we did was trade Timothy Carey stories. And he told Damn. me, and this is what Coble told him, they brought in Timothy Carey for Godfather um, 
for The Godfather, and then he didn't want to do it. And they brought him back. He didn't want to do The Godfather because he was he was shooting his own TV show called um, Tweets Ladies of Paradise. It, Let me I look to see. Yes, yes. Tweets Ladies of Pasadena. That's what oh, it is. Yes. It, it wow. was, by the way, one of the right. worst things I've ever seen in my life. I, one of the <laughs> he was wor- playing a was, character called Tweet Twig, apparently. And he was uh, like so he, making... He was tweet. You wanted to make clothes for animals because you didn't think animals should be. It was his idea of what a sitcom should be. It was insane, and, <laughs> and so he's like, "I gotta, I gotta make my show. I can't be in your dumb gangster movie." So then he turns it. So then for the sequel, they still want him for the sequel. <laughs> so they bring we want him best in. Picture. Do you want to come back? Come on. They bring him in, and he comes in with a like a bakery box or something like. I brought cannoli for everybody. And then he opens the box and there's a gun in there that he filled with blanks and he started shooting it into the ceiling <laughs> and everyone freaked out and then he got chased off the lot by security. And he was like, I was just trying to create some tension. It was a gangster movie. Come on, like, just out of his fucking mind. And it was just, oh th- that's why he didn't get to be in Godfather 2 because he was a lunatic. <laughs> it's also just crazy. You look at like Tim Carrey's whole filmography and you have like so many huge like oh, you know and God. a lot of these are uncredited too yeah. but it's like you have East of Eden mm-hmm. and you have Minnie and Moskowitz and Head and Shock Treatment obviously this oh movie my God. and then you have like Chesty Anderson USN you have two Francis the Talking Mule movies <laughs> like that, along with his own insane vanity projects like the birth of like the the highest highs and the lowest oh. dregs of film in every genre just the best i mean he, he he has it. He has one of the earliest um, post-credit sequence um, in a movie um, in DC Cab. After the credits are oh, done, yeah. and he gets in the cab, and it's a uh, uh, Charles Barnett. Uh, where to? He goes. I'm the angel of death. Take me to hell. And he's like, any luggage? Like just it was just perfect. <laughs> That's all. He just sits down, says it, done. <laughs> What was his type? Was he just crazy? Like, was he just the weird guy? So he's huge. So he would play heavies. Yeah, he is a gigantic human being, and he also <laughs> has this voice. There's just there's nothing like it. I, you, I can't describe it. He, he's just such a weird presence, and those weird eyes. Yeah. It looks like he's half yeah, asleep his, half the time. He, oh right, it, or like that he's like staring through you or whatever. It's very unsettling. Right. But Cage is a good comparison, too, because even at this point in time where film acting at large is less naturalistic, he is so expressionistic. Like, he's just like, I have no interest in capturing literal human no. behavior. It's it's your tweet about it, Patton, that I found where his clenched jaw thing was sort of making him this, like, living corpse. Right. Like, was it was a rigor already. mortis thing. Right. He, right. Exactly. Right. He was, I'm already dead, and I'm going to play this with a rictus because I'm going to die. Oh, it's, it's so good. God. I could, and, it's so I, and I can imagine a director being like, what? Don't do that. <laughs> no, what? You're alive in yeah. this scene. <laughs> and because Kubrick is basing so many of these scenes around, like, you know, masters, deep focus masters with very limited camera movement, you know? So you're really letting the actors control the pace of these scenes. The one scene where Sterling Hayden goes to see Tim Carey for the first time and he's got the puppy in his hands. Yeah. And you're not cutting to close up, so you really get to in real time watch five minutes of Tim Carey stroking a puppy. And you're constantly just like, is he about to snap this thing's neck? No, why does he have this dog? Oh, yeah. yeah, get that dog away from him. He just. Yeah. And also to do the cut from this brutal 
shotgunning these targets. And then we cut to he's got the gun and the puppy. Like, what the hell am I looking at right now? Yes. We'll talk. Look, we'll talk about him again because he was crazy when they made Paths of Glory as well. And eventually Kubrick fired him with, with by the way, fired him with very good reason. Yes. Because there was, there was no re- what a friggin nut on that movie. I know the whole story. What a friggin uh, psycho. Sag had no no <laughs> cause for rejection, but apparently he's also in the, his image from the killing is on the Sergeant Pepper cover behind George Harrison. I'm trying to find it now. Oh, really? Yes, uh, but specifically wow. from this movie. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, can see on outtake photos. All right, okay, so I may not have made the final cover, but anyway, um, Timothy Carey, he's he's great, but everyone in this is great not just him right like there's not really a false note here no every performance is so fantastic even um you know you know someone like uh um elijah cook who at that point had, had almost become like he was his own genre of person and he finds different levels for his character that that normally is outside of the elijah cook kind of ouvre that I mm-hmm. just amazing. God, he's right. so I good. I feel like usually, like right, like post Maltese Falcon, he would play psychos, right? He would play like uh, very creepy guys most of the time. Yeah, this yeah, is him, yeah. This is him more in like sort of sad, lonely, pathetic mode. Like, yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's sort of it's sort of lateral from that. But I mean, I love him so Marie, much in the Maltese Falcon. What? What? Marie? What? Marie Windsor mm-hmm. is the one who totally grabbed oh me. Watching this, yeah. Those eyes and, and and the face. I mean, it's like an early Ileana Douglas. You know, this kind of yes, yes, witchy, yeah. kind of gorgeous. And also, you know what? This is. I, I'm not saying this to be to be glib or uh, dismissive, but she and Elijah Cook Jr. in this. You know what it feels like to me? Though that whole part of the movie feels like if the Softy Brothers adapted the Lockhorns comic into a movie. Like <laughs> it's so truly trying to kill each other. Yeah. Right. Really actually trying to kill each other. Well, there's something like she was very tall and her career was always hamstrung. She was too tall. Sure. She was like five, rarely nine. having leading men really? that were her size yeah. and mostly needing to do performances where she was like crouching, you know, where her ankles and knees were pulling like triple duty and shit. And this movie allows her to kind of be tall because she needs to have such sort of dominance over yeah. him physically. Right. He has yeah. to be but this But the other thing is, yeah. right, this is like a stock type at this point in this type of movie but all of these sort of one-liners she slings over her shoulder at his expense are said with genuine disdain oh yeah they're not just sort of like sassy lady one-liners they're like this woman is miserable and she yes. is angry at the life she's living yeah and and, and like so, so miserable to the point where even her dying words are a jab at her husband like the last <laughs> yeah. word she's gonna leave this planet with are going to be to, to what one Last shit on this guy's head. Right. She she has to cuck him with her final breath. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of rooting for her. Yeah. Were husbands always saying that you're we're gonna be rich someday in those days? Was that a thing? I I think it's American dream coming out of like sort of Great Depression. Yeah, it's shit. like an yeah. aspirational yeah. time. Yeah. Everyone's you know America's booming, right? Everyone's doing great. I mean, you were talking about right. that patent before we started recording. How fifties more. Like America is in better shape in fifties noir than it is in forties noir. Like, generally, yeah, but, right? but again, yeah. that makes the darkness darker because, right? Yes, right. America is in better shape, and everyone's making it. So if you're not making it, 
Something you're a real really scumbag. Wrong. Yeah, you're an absolute scumbag. But it's this thing that I like about Noirs at this time is that the, the people who are trying to pull off these sort of these crazy, uh, you know, sort of moves are often just not quite smart enough to do it. Yeah. A little too unsavory to be able to win people over. It's what you're saying. There's something fundamentally broken in them that's preventing them from achieving the American dream. Well, yeah, that's what I love about this movie is that, unlike a lot of crime capers, this movie is about a guy who is aspiring to pull off a multi-leveled 4D chess thing, but he is just a checker player. He is a thug. He should yeah. just, he should go into a liquor store Hit a guy with a sock full of quarters, take whatever's in the register, and just try to live on that. This You are so out of your wheelhouse on this dude. It really right. is. Right, and that's what Maurice is saying to him, right? He's like, mediocrity is what you should be aspiring to here, buddy. You yes. know, like, but, yeah. but then again, also, I do feel like, so Johnny Clay, he's Sterling Hayden is the main character, and he's this is his one last job, right? He's going to steal $2 million. This is going to be it. Mm-hmm. He is aspiring to mediocrity in that he's like, and then I can be a normal guy, right? Like that right. is supposedly the brass ring he's grabbing for, right? I'll be, yeah, I'll be Mister Joe Schmo Anonymous. I'll live off the money. It'll be great. He has the same dreams as like as as Walter Matthau and Charlie Varick of like, I got this money. I just want to go vanish and and live on on the on the low end, out of sight, and just live on the money quietly. That's all I want. Just, you right. know. The difference, though, is in a Walter Matthau movie, you genuinely believe all this guy wants is to take a nap, right? Is <laughs> just to get even, even young enough. Matthau, yes. Yeah. Right. Whereas, like, Sterling Hayden, you imagine the movie where he pulls this off. 18 months from now, he's going to be so impatient. You're right. You're right. He'll ruin it down the road. He'll ruin it. He'll absolutely ruin it. To quote back to you, my favorite things you've ever said about movies, Pat, and so many of these lines just ring in my head, whether they're bits or they're off-cuff sort of uh, uh, things you've said in interviews. I think you were programming some series, a repertory theater or whatever, and you were presenting uh, uh, the original taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Yes. Do you know the line I'm about to say back to you? I don't. I can't remember. No, what is it? You have quoted I, this I'm line gonna, on this podcast. I'm going gonna to misquote certain. it. I've said it on this podcast because it's it's the fundamental encapsulation of everything I love about Walter Matthau. You said you look at the Tony Scott remake and the guy has to be Denzel Washington. And they can try to schlub up Denzel Washington as much as possible. But you know he's Denzel Washington. Yeah. And in the original film, they go, there's only one guy who can handle this case. And the camera pans over and he's hung over <laughs> in an ill-fitting suit eating a stale hot dog. Yes. <laughs> and the, and the, the specific of Walter Matthau eating a stale hot dog has always stuck with me. Yeah. God, it's just – and also so they, they, they introduce him being a racist idiot. That's his introduction. Yes. He's being the most racist moron on the planet. And like, and now I got to save these passengers. Like, oh, like this oh, fucking guy? No. This guy looks like he can't do his own laundry. Yeah. What are you he talking looks, about? He barely looks like he can dress himself in that movie. No, yes. he does not oh. look like he can dress himself. Let's be clear. He's matching, like, red check <laughs> with a yellow tie. It's, 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 he, someone else good. should be making the decisions. Yes. Yeah. At least yeah. there. I mean, that's what the, that movie's a masterpiece. But just the idea of, like, there's a hostage situation. Matthew's reaction is like, oh, boy. Uh, what is it? You know, like, he's on yeah. the phone with a guy. And he's like, come on. What are you doing this for? Well, People are late. It's, it's, it's New York in the 70s. The dispatcher, yeah. the mayor, they're all like, What? Why do they want? <laughs> then let him have it. I don't. I just want. And the, and the mayor's just trying to watch Prices Right, and he misses the fight. He's like, I missed it. Like no one cares. 
Oh god. But the the brutal poetry of Sterling Hayden is he's he's not smart enough to pull off a con of this size, but he's too smart to ever be happy if he were to pull it off. Yes, right? yeah, he's stuck in that weird middle zone. That is a great way to think of it. He will if he pulls it off, he will be miserable in some other way down the road. You're right. He's doomed. Yeah. Uh, and I like that we know nothing about him, just that he's a vet, just that, you know, that he's been doing this for a while. Right. We, there's no real backstory on Johnny Clay. He, the, the name is no. perfect. He might as well have just been like, you know, smacked out of clay. You know, and has on he the done board. time? Yeah. Has I don't done, know that they mention the, it. So maybe, I know. I feel like not. they say he just did a five year bid. And did he do the five year bit with Marv or is he is Marv an old prison buddy? It's the the older gentleman who runs the hotel. His son, they serve time together. Oh, and that's how okay. he knows, okay. like, right, and, and right. you know where to stay or whatever. Okay. Um, but we're we're in the middle of it, which is good. Like he's already thought the heist up. It's you know he's got this cop. Oh, yeah. He's got the teller. He's got the sharpshooter. Right. Like he's got the the wrestler's going to do the fight. Everyone is whatever. He has laid out the chess moves in his head. But but what a chess player, a chess player never considers that the pieces have lives and wants and needs of their <laughs> own. In his mind, is like the rook just does this, the knight does yeah, this. Yeah, they'll do like, what I well, want. But in real life, they'll they're not going to do any of that stuff. It's actually fascinating to think about. I mean, from a Kubrick's chess background, but b the sort of uh, perfectionist control he's going to exact on all his movies going forward. That it's a movie about a guy who cannot control other people's behavior, who believes that he can just, if you were able to just do everything I fucking told you to do, this would work perfectly. The vision in my head is immaculate, and you fucking people keep on messing it up with your variables. So tragic. He's such a dummy, he can't see it. He can't get out of his own way. I, I think one of the most striking elements of this movie for me is the narration, which is so bizarre. The tone of it is so odd, but it does feel like so ominous from the very beginning. Like the the two things it reminds me of are it reminds me a lot of the Ricky Jay narration at the beginning of Magnolia, which yeah. you, of course, are part yeah. of Patton. But that weird thing where you're seeing very banal slices of people's lives, but you understand like he wouldn't be telling me this if something very odd or were about to happen. Bad. It, he almost he has the tone of a cautionary tale. Like there's yes, this exactly. undercurrent of like, and here's the lesson. Pay attention. Right. So at this right. time, he thinking that he would get you like, oh, okay. Yeah, it has that something. You're right. Something's about to go wrong. It's got that newsreel quality, which obviously Kubrick has a background oh, yeah, in. Yeah. But it's like, yeah. this is this sort of like impartial narrator reporting back to you the bad thing that just happened. But when it's happening in a fictional narrative film, it's like this looming specter of these guys just working towards this, like, uneasy end. Oh, it's so eerie. Right. And I forget who does the narration in Network, but he has that same sort of vibe and the same as the Ricky J vibe where it's just – there's something a little too slick, (laughs) a little too removed. Lee Richardson is the narrator. Wow. Such a good voice. Really good voice. Now, okay, I – there, there's. We're, we're going to jump around uh, to scenes, yeah. much like mm-hmm. the movie jumps around in time. I was very intrigued, and I looked this up online, and there's a there's discussion about it, but there's no de- definitive. That scene right before Sterling Hayden, um, he's talking to Marv, and Marv out of nowhere 
basically says, you and I should run off together when we're done with this. You and I should go. You don't want to be in it. Like, basically, he, he implies, like, this marriage to Faye is going to be a mistake. You shouldn't do it. You should be with, like, is that a gay come on? Or is it a, you shouldn't be married. Let's just go live as bachelors. You'll be, like, is he trying to save Clay from disaster? It's a very odd scene in the middle of the movie. Like, it looks like a, is it a gay pass or not? It is interesting. It is, especially since Faye is supposedly the motivation for all of this. It's right. like, I'm getting married. I need to go straight. This is going to set us up. Like, right. so you'd think that would be a positive. Right. But is is it you wouldn't be happy with her truly? Right. Or is it you would be a piece of shit to her? Don't fucking yeah. subject but her to you're that. You're right in that like most of this movie is fairly clear cut it's an economical movie like scenes like that and then the later scene with maurice ruminating about mediocrity those are scenes where you're like there's there's a million different readings that i can you know come up with off of this like that's it's it's interesting that that's you know the little sort of ambiguity that kubrick is sprinkling in on into yeah. a fairly straightforward yeah. heist gone wrong thing maybe he's just trying to save that poor woman from being faye clay <laughs> it is like not a great great name i don't know it's it's not as bad as victoria mature maybe but it's close i am now going to rewatch this scene it's yes. an amazing scene it's really weird i mean not to jump ahead but like the moment where johnny refers to faye as his wife to airport security and kubrick shows you her face reacting to that like you know they're not married yet but he's essentially like well this is my you know like he's He's presenting the sort of like, you know, the future that they want together. Like you feel for her. Like she she's she's still in it at that point. Like she still wants that to be the result. That luggage scene is almost the most brutal scene in the entire film. Oh God. Yeah. It is because it's long too. It's like the the manager comes in, you're like, oh, this is gonna turn this around and it doesn't, and it's well, also because they they do that great thing, the manager's being so helpful. He goes, well, that's no problem. And she think, oh, wait a minute. So he's going to let him bring it on. He's like, we'll just cancel your flight. And we'll get you. No, wait, no, that's not, like, it's just. <laughs> right. uh, They're not being jerks. Yeah. <laughs> no. It's such good, like, tonal control, too, because those two actors are the only two people in this entire film who don't know they're in a noir film. Right. Yeah. So their sort of friendly professionalism is so off-putting. And just makes you so uncomfortable. That that's a moment where a slick, like say Sinatra, like you you wouldn't buy that Sinatra wouldn't be able to talk those guys into just checking the damn bag, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, carry yeah, it yeah on. exactly. Yeah. And like Sterling Hayden, you're like, yeah, this guy has hit his limit in terms of you know being able to work the system. Or he being has no able social energy someone. left. He's got yeah, no charm. No. Yeah, yeah. Sinatra, like, you let me take this bag on, or it's ring a ding ding for the two of you. <laughs> You know, like there would have been something fun or, hey, Jilly, Jilly, tell these guys to put my bag on the plane. You like this hat? I'll give you this hat. (laughs) Not only that, but Sterling Hayden would probably have an easier time if the guys were being aggressive with him. If they were like, excuse me, sir, you cannot. He's big. He's scary. He's got a face like a tombstone. Like, you know, he's, yeah, but right. He'd he'd give him what for. He's not good at like, oh, Jesus Christ. Can I talk to your manager or something? I just need to get the fucking bag on the plane. Like, you know, that's. Yeah, he's not a good Karen. No, he's a bad no, character. no, no. And the the one thing he can't deal with right now is like Edie McClurg, you know? <laughs> what if that's in the film? If he's like, all right, so I got a wrestler, I got a corrupt cop, I got a Karen, obviously, a great I Karen. Got a, I, I'm going to need a Karen for the airport. I know that already. 
She's getting us through all the gates. It's going to be great. <laughs> Ocean's 8 was like three years too early to have a Karen. Right, yeah. But it, it absolutely would have been one of the... I, Catherine Hahn would have played a Karen. Oh, if she would have been amazing. Three years later. Yeah. She's just, what do we need? We need a, Her phone a, is a, immediately a open. She's like, I'm filming all of this. What's your name? A pickpocket? A Karen? Don't hide your badge. I want to see your name. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so okay so the yeah there are other scenes we want to get into in particular like you know a lot of the early part of this movie is set up and then we are just delving into the inner lives i feel like of all these characters yeah yeah briefly yeah. i mean i mean this movie has one of those stories i love where like they they shoot it this way they edit it this way with the sort of jumbled uh, chronology they test screen it uh, or, or they show it to the studio. The studio's like, this is too fucking confusing. Edit this in the right order. They test screen it, and the audiences hate it even more wow. when it's in the right order. So they're like, fuck you. I guess turn it back. I mean, this must have been kind of a revolutionary thing for the time, I guess, uh, you know, t- doing stuff out of order. But, um, you know, it, it also just shows you how, ran- not just random, how random life is, but how the most seemingly insignificant things are what, cause the biggest disasters in real life you know the the little puppy getting loose the the bad marriage um that leads to you know the guy telling his wife what's going on like all these little elements keep going back and forth that you know i think the, the messing around with time really puts you in that um mindset of i have no control over anything even though i'm trying to impose control that's why i think the narrator is so ironic he coming back in and saying what day it is, saying what time it is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is all going to end in disaster, you know? But that, right. But that's how it's in Johnny Clay's head, right? He's like, this is clockwork. I've done well. Every piece is arranged. And then we're just watching slowly as we're like, well, no, he doesn't actually, like you're saying, he has no control over this or he doesn't have enough control over this. And he's only going to get someone like Elisha Cook on board because Elisha Cook is an unstable person like you know right that's how you're gonna you know convince someone to join you in a scheme like this if they have their own hardship and and jumbling it that way and having the narrator this weird impartial you know voice up in the sky uh being the one who explains it to us and and dictates the order of it kind of like turns set up into punchline because you're sort of filling in the blanks in your head noir style of like, okay, what's the windup of this? And when it ends up being such a kind of banal, small thing, it feels even more absurd that it's escalating to this point, you know? Or or how these things are ultimately undone. Yeah. I mean, it's also that that moment where I think even Sterling Hayden, when he sees the money on the, on the tarmac blowing away, when he goes, what's the difference? He's like, I was never ever even close to having this thing succeed it was all an illusion the whole time if i could be undone by that if i could be undone it's like it's so minor the guy doesn't even crash he just sort of like makes a slightly hard turn and that's it (laughs) the suitcase is open um slightly can i and like can i just say uh marie windsor's character that her boyfriend is called val cannon that is the just a perfect name for uh you know a boyfriend who's cucking poor elisha hook uh vince vince edwards is the actor he's best known for Mm -hmm. the devil's brigade i feel like yeah well also um very well known for uh murder by contract which was a huge influence on taxi driver like basically this movie yeah and but all of the the scenes where he's just like alone and 
working out in his hotel room and exercising. Um, that's all Travis Bickle. And like that movie, I, I saw that because the uh, Criterion did that Columbia Noir collection a while ago. And I remember I watched all of those. Yeah. And that was one of them. And that's like, it's that's even later than this, like 58 or something. And that's one of those things where you're like, Jesus, this is like, this is chilling. Like, this is unsettling. Like, this, this yeah. doesn't feel like a lot of earlier noirs. Like, this is kind no. of just... Yeah, like you know, icky, which is cool. Like you know, there's n- n- not not much attempt to win us over. Right, right. This is, and it's in a different way for different reasons. But this is one of the noirs that feels the most modern to me. You know, and and I don't say that as uh, you know, it 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 doesn't make it better or worse. Even though I think this is a, a phenomenal film. But like you know, a lot of times when you're going to noir, what you're going for is the evocation of that very specific feel and the style right, of that right. moment. And something about the pacing of this movie the sort of briskness of it, but also that the sort of uh, sort of disorganized narrative and all of that. And, and there's a modernism, I think, to the performances in this, which is probably what Kubrick was trying to push towards. Yeah. But as you said, Griff, they, they, right. They added the movie as we know it. Mm-hmm. Sterling Hayden's agent sees it and is furious. Uh, Bill Schifrin uh, says like you you know what's all this back and forth business just when you're getting to the robbery you cut you're going to irritate the audience I'm very disappointed in you guys so they go back and they recut it chronologically and they were like it sucked like it had to be this way like you know it was mm-hmm. it was no good it's just a straightforward story um, because it's a very simple story oh it's very I mean again when you look back on it Sterling Hayden's character is not a clever man he is a jumped up mm-hmm liquor store robber it's all brutality and violence it's point a to point b but in his mind because i guess he made friends with a chess player he's like i want to be i want to do a like a chess move kind of thing but he doesn't understand how this works he doesn't get it what's so telling that the 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 scene with the wrestler is all about the sort of futility of this plan and like accepting the mediocrity of life here's the one guy who understands the chessboard like literally and figuratively yes. and he's being recruited just as a physical muscle <laughs> literally to just punch. To create a distraction he's, can, he can throw a punch though where three people will fall down from one punch like that's <laughs> right. he, he can clear whole units essentially just by swinging his arm it's just it's funny how overthought this plan is though that he's like i need two distractions going on i not only need a horse to get murdered but i need a wrestler to get into a fist fight like the fucking collection and also by the way wouldn't a horse being shot at a race make everything that happened around that horse being shot very suspect and they would double yes, check that's, everything about like th- that you're, you're putting so much more attention on yourself especially the odds on favorite who's right. like the, part of his whole plan is like this horse is gonna have such a commanding lead that when you shoot it all the other horses behind are gonna trip over it and knock down yeah the the fight in the bar he's drawing too much attention to it. i would not do that where i'm maurice i would i would re- i would de- no. I, I, yeah but also here's my other question you're right maurice does have a head for chess and he seems to understand that but chess doesn't translate to real life. So why does he go in on this plan? And, and and what is the letter that he wants the cashier at the chess place to deliver? If I'm not back at 6.30, make sure, is that to his son? Who is that to? Or, or some state? So, I, I feel like it was, I was under the assumption it was like an attorney. 
I, I it wasn't uh, clear to me what he he wants a letter and then if you don't hear about from me by six thirty then deliver it. But if not, it was very weird. He, I mean, that's right when he's he gives that sort of monologue about like you've heard of the Siberian goat herd who stared at the sun and it made him blind, right? Like. I feel like his whole sort of po- po- poet lunkhead thing where he's like, look, I'm just here to clear out a bar, you know, as a distraction. But I for he has some sort of Zen status about being a criminal, I right? Where guess. he's like, maybe maybe this is my last day or maybe, you know, I'll be back tomorrow. Um, but, uh, you know, he's 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 free of any kind of anxieties about it, at least. I mean, he's I the know. character I like the most. I love that character. I oh, love that character. The fact that he's he's a philosopher, but he's also basically the thing from the Fantastic Four. <laughs> like, that's just the <laughs> yes. weirdest combination for a character. Well, especially since all of his lines are the things we're talking these monologues that are so interesting. And then when he has to start a fight, he just goes to the bar and he's like, hey, can I get some service, you Irish pig? Yeah. And he, like, swings at the bartender <laughs> right away. I will punch a hole through this wall for you, but first, may I quote from Tolstoy, who once wrote that, oh, God, what the hell? Yeah. I, I just also think, on paper, you go, we're, we got this, like, Eastern European wrestler, and we're giving him these sort of brutal monologues, like, these existential monologues about, like, the meaningness of life and accepting it, whatever. You you imagine it will come off like Blazing Saddles, with like Mongo just pawning Game of Life, where it's like you can't give this guy this much dialogue. You know, even Ed Wood knew not to give fucking Tor, Tor Johnson, Johnson right. soliloquies, right. and then this guy fucking nails it. Do you know how he died? Uh, I don't. No, no. how did he die? He was seventy six years old, and he was leaving his regular chess club where he played. And he was jumped by five teenagers, and he decided to fight back and take them on himself. Oh, my God. God. Nick probably could have handled one or two of them, but five were too many. Jesus Christ. This is what his widow said after his death. Wait a minute. So that, hang on. Did he die from the exertion of fighting him, or did the teenagers kill him? He was taken to the hospital and died in the hospital. So I guess I'm guessing it was right. a combination of both. Yeah, yeah. They did some damage yeah. and he, he was yeah. I'm sorry. He was seventy seven. Seven years old, born in nineteen oh three. He was yeah. from Georgia, the you know uh the yeah. one in Europe, not 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 yeah, Georgia. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> they they bumped into each other, words were exchanged, Nick never took any guff from anybody, and soon he was engaged with a fight with all five kids at once. Holy I would not uh, I personally no. would not but, jump this guy. I, I would look <laughs> yeah. at that guy, even if there are certain people that you, and this is men and women, even when they're older, you look at them and go, yeah, that, no, I would never, ever no. mess with that person. <laughs> Especially because there's a certain kind of person that even if when they, when they, when they lose vitality physically, they still have that air about them of, and I'm quoting um, Don, uh, Don Marrera here saying, if you fight me, you better kill me. Because, you know, like it's that yeah. kind of thing where it's like, yeah, I, this isn't worth it. This guy's out of his mind. Well, in well, this here, era where like the yeah. most intimidating physical pre- this is him oh playing chess with Kubrick. Holy shit! David just put up the photo. Photo of Kubrick, Hayden, and uh, Nick uh, Quarani playing chess. Oh, beautiful. And he's wearing like a, a short sleeve white button down shirt. Like he looks like an office drone. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's incredible. I, another thing I love about this guy, yeah, his name was Kola Quarani, 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 but his yeah. wrestling nickname was Nick the Wrestler. Nick the Wrestler! <laughs> so, so, right on the tin, you know? 
Wow, man, the Nick uh, the wrestler. Boy, the writers' room on that nickname that must have gone hours. <laughs> so hang on, let, give me some work. What does he do? He's a wrestler. Okay, uh, does he have a first name? Nick. Okay, I'll get back to you in four hours. I'll have something for you. Amazing. <laughs> right now, and there's, there's like a whiteboard. <laughs> with like Nick and No, but they came it. in with Nicholas the wrestler and someone was like, not quite right. Oh no, mm-hmm. you know what? I know exactly what happened. They wrote Nick and wrestler on a chalkboard out in the hallway and then during the night, mm-hmm. this janitor who was secretly a genius <laughs> came and he put he put the word the in between Nick and wrestler and they're like, oh my God, who is doing this? What? This is amazing. <laughs> Some nickname genius walks among us. <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, so, okay, uh, let me tell you a little more about the, the post-production on this. So they take the they take their cut, the cut of the film, the original cut, right. to United mm-hmm. Artists. One person is there. Max Youngstein had a production. He watches it. He says, good job. Uh, let's keep in touch. And they, like, they're like, well, what should we do? Where? They say, where do we go from here? This is, you know, uh, Kubrick and Harris. And Max said, what about out the door? And Kubrick said, well, you have other producer filmmaker teams. Where would you rank us with all those people? And Max said, not far from the bottom. So he basically watches the movie and he's like, it appears to be a film. Good job, guys. Thank you. I will release this. I have no further notes. And they're like, did you like it? And he's like, nah, not really. But so essentially they are Kubrick and Harris are like, well, they're not going to market this. Like they're just we're we're doomed. This thing isn't going to get any kind of backing. And so they themselves sort of tried to market themselves as like the new UA wonder team. They were in like the Hollywood Reporter and Variety and Life and things like that, trying to be like, uh, you know, uh, a, a wonderkind sort of um, pair that, that Hollywood should get excited about. But they did all that themselves. UA kind of ignored it. And them. then didn't Kirk Douglas see this and went, oh, this is Paths of Glory. This is the guy I want. That's the whole thing. It's... Right. They were like smart about positioning themselves that way, betting on a star is going to recognize the us yep. and like there will be a studio head who recognizes what we have going on. And it was Dory Sherry at MGM and Kirk Douglas, who both were like, yeah, this makes sense. it oh, yeah. got like the movie got perfectly good reviews. Like it was not like badly received or anything, but it didn't make much money. And UA didn't really care about it. They, yeah. you know, they just they put it on a double bill with Bandito, the Robert Mitchum movie. Uh, but that's that's sort of it. I've never seen Bandito. It's a that's me a Western, neither. I think yeah, Richard Fleischer movie. Wow. And there's there's a Time Magazine review from the time where they're really amped up on it, and they predict that it's quote going to make a killing at the cash booths. <laughs> and then the next hey. the next line in the Wikipedia is the film recorded a loss of one hundred thirty thousand dollars. <laughs> but I think you know I think why because people hate puns. They hate puns. Yes, they do. And it was too easy a pun to make. It was too easy. Right. Come dared. on, guys, please. With these sterling performances, this movie should make a killing. Boom. <laughs> the thing that speaks to, like, I guess, it, like you said, obviously Kirk Douglas and et cetera, like that helps. But I do feel like everything that Harris is saying in these recollections of them getting shat on by UA is he's saying, like, Kubrick knew he was good. Like, this was not like demoralizing for him. He wasn't walking out of this movie being like, ah, "I fucked it up." Like, ah, I should have. They, you know, I should have listened to them or whatever. Like, he was like, "No, this movie was good. I did a good." He job. finally made something he felt like he could totally stand behind. Right. Yeah. As right. Like, yeah. 
And also, objectively, he could look at the other movies that were out at the time and go, this is so much fucking better than all this other <laughs> right. stuff. I mean, my God. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, you know, what's what's 1950? I'm trying to think. Like, that's sort of, I think that's the year around the world in 80 days wins Best Picture. Like, yeah. it's, it's sort of the, the, the sort of heyday of those, like, really overblown. The Ten Commandments is a big movie that year. The King and I, these, like, gigantic scale uh, costume drama things. Yeah, I think Danny Peary talked about how, like, late 50s to the early 60s, Hollywood was in its, like, I don't fucking know. I don't know. Like, just <laughs> you know, get a book, everything. I don't know what that... And, then, in and it, it really, like, right, kind of... Yeah. It, it hits its wall with that... The year that, like, um, Medium Cool and Bonnie and Clyde come out, like, the studios are putting out, like, yeah. Paint Your Wagon. Like, the, no idea what anything is going on in culture or society just out of their fucking minds. So yeah, there's that we're, we're entering that phase of like all the great movies from this era are these little low budget, you know, um, experimental shadows, little fugitive, the killing, shadows. you know, stuff like that, that people were just trying to do, you know, interesting stuff. Yeah. You look at best picture this year and it's like, you have friendly persuasion in there, but the other four films are around the world in 80 days, giant King and I 10 commandments. Like it's oh, four just humongous yikes. sort of, epic mega productions like i'll you know the king and i is a is a pretty you know ten commandments it's got you know but like none of those movies are are good watches really like they they, i mean king and i is probably the closest because at least they're singing and dancing in that thing but like like around the world in 80 days is a slog which weird is yeah they each have moments that would become what people wanted to see later but they're stuck in the middle of these giant films so in the middle of giant you have James Dean doing really cool, um, you know, experimental acting stuff. In The Ten Commandments, yeah, the movie's goddamn ridiculous, but there are some sequences (laughs) that are fucking so hallucinatory and psychedelic. But before they knew what psychedelic was, when that green fog comes in to kill, you know. And yeah, um, uh, King and I has the singing and then Around the World in 80 Days. I I mean, I'm sorry. I, I tried watching that movie a few months ago, and it's all it is. Is just hey, look at this! Like the 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 scene with Sinatra in the Frontier Bar where he turned. He's supposed to go, hey, that's Frank Sinatra! Like he's like playing okay, the piano or whatever. Gives sure, a shit. Right. Like yeah, <laughs> isn't like old Buster Keaton in that? Right, he shows up or whatever. Yeah. Oh, is yeah, he yeah, there? I'm sure. That. Wasn't that one of those all star casts? Hey, like, yeah, everyone's right. back. Right, we're going Yay. around the world, baby. Um, yeah. it's hey, we're swinging around the world, baby. <laughs> um, I, I'm yeah, I'm looking at sort of you know the, this is the La Strada wins best foreign language film. Like there's little wow. things in in the Oscars when you're sort of poking around, like things like James Dean. Obviously, I mean he's a, he's he's already dead. Obviously, you know at this point, but you know like there's stuff like that. One of the weirdest and coolest Oscar wins ever happens this year. What's that? What? The Red Balloon winning best screenplay. Oh, the Red Balloon. Really? Yeah, the little 30-minute, you know, the Red Balloon, the classic, won best original right. screenplay. Yeah. Holy right, a shit. A short non-dialogue film, a 35-minute short that's mostly just a boy chasing a balloon, won best original screenplay. Yeah. Over, like, beat the Lady Killers. The Bold and the yeah. Brave, La Strada, wow. the Lady Killers. It's insane. That's, always, and look, that's the value to me of the Oscars. It's not what they get right. It's the weird moments where they award something that you do not expect them to award. Um, yes. yeah. Or, and also, the huge misses they have are often so much more valuable 
to movies becomes that becomes part of the movie's lore. I mean, right. you know, Goodfellas is already a brilliant film, and but part of its majesty is the fact that you show that to someone today and they go, and that clearly won Best Picture. You're like, nope. And then right. and you go, can you name right. what one? And no one remembers that it was Dances with Wolves, which, by the way, is also a right. fine film, but... How many Fine. times do people watch Dances with Wolves? Like Goodfellas is like part of our vernacular now. It's such it's such an amazing piece of filmmaking. Yeah, and like if if that had been Scorsese's like coronation moment, then the rest of his career is probably super different. You know, and like yeah, that, exactly, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I showed. We, we, I have a couple of friends. Um, one of the the actress that I did this movie with, um, I love my dad. It was Claudia Saluski. She and her boyfriend. They're in their mid twenties. They had. We were having dinner with them one night, my wife and I, and we they'd let casually they'd never seen Goodfellas. I was like, Oh, come mm -hmm. over, we'll have dinner and we'll watch it in my screen room. Watching two people in their mid twenties experience Goodfellas for the first time and the which is a movie that was made before they were born, and they're like it felt like that movie was over in 10 minutes. Like I couldn't believe yeah. how propulsive and there's no CGI, there's no it's just performance and filmmaking and writing is keeping me glued to this screen. That movie could have, it, it, it was just amazing to watch them experience it. Was there any moment where they were like, oh, I I knew that. Like, you know, like it's always fun to watch a film that has fully entered the cultural lexicon with someone who doesn't know maybe that it's coming, right? Like some line or yeah, something. The whole, yeah, the whole, the how am I funny scene, you know, the how am I funny, the oh, mm -hmm. you broke your cherry, apparently because the, um, uh, the guy is a musician and he's heard that amongst other musicians like, oh my God, I just signed this deal with Warner Brothers and they totally fucked me over. Oh, you broke your cherry. Like, <laughs> welcome to the world. You, you, now you know how shitty everything is. And also just the way that they used music in that film. It's all um, soundtrack, but it tells a story at the same time. And especially one thing that I hadn't um, realized was at the end when... Henry is driving around and he's just out of his mind on coke and seeing helicopters. The way they cut the songs together is how you listen to music when you're coked out of your head. You're just zipping around the dial, listen to two seconds of this song, eight seconds of this song, a minute of this one. Like it's all the the the, the soundtrack design is a feat in itself that I don't think ever has been equaled ever ever in a film. There's right. that thing that I feel like circulated around the internet a couple of years ago where he sent the script to Michael Powell of Powell and Pressburger to get his thoughts before they started filming the movie. And Powell had this amazing, like, typed up cover letter that's essentially like, this script is great, but Jesus Christ, how the fuck are you going to pull this off? Yeah. Like, he was just like the relentlessness and the sort of like, this thing is just like a bullet train. It is. But like, I, I don't envy you trying to make this movie, but if you can pull it off, it's what's the last line? He says, Dear Marty, it is a stunning script and will make a wonderful film and a priceless social document. And he's yeah. right. And by the way, one of the first, you, you, I'm sure you guys already know this, and this will bring us back to the killing because we're talking about that, you know, directors who really respect the documentary feel and the realism almost to a fault. The scene, the Maury's Wig Shop commercial, they, there was a, there's a mm. version of that that Scorsese shot. And he was like, there's something wrong. This doesn't work because he was basing it on an actual commercial that he saw for a wig shop growing up that was made by the guy who ran the wig shop. So he tracked the guy down and had him shoot the commercial that you see in Goodfellas. That is shot, that footage was shot and cut by the guy who 
own that wig shot. That's that's super cool. Because with me, I'm, I'm I, I won't be able to prevent myself. It'll be too my right. Master- <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want this guy. Which, by the way, one of the one of the standout moments of the movie. It's so amazing that sequence is incredible. Yeah. And but but like you know Kubrick getting back to Kubrick, which is I will and, and again this is so weird how he got away from this. I will sacrifice something looking good and professional if I can have something more real and immediate. You know, getting back to that fight with Lucian Ballard. No, let's do it with a wide angle lens, make it look weird. I know how it's going to look. It's also fascinating when you read sometimes these anecdotes that will come out about like Kubrick's favorite movies. There are those stories about like him seeing uh, whatchamacallit, uh, uh, modern, modern romance. romance being, the, I've always wanted to make a movie Brooks about movie. jealousy. Yeah, right. Right. And he was just like, how did you do this? Like, I right. need you, Albert Brooks, to give me Stanley Kubrick notes because you've captured a thing I failed to find a way to get on camera. In, in, to, in Albert's, to Albert's credit, modern romance is a genuinely brilliant film that has aged so well and is so immediate about exactly how we are now. There are moments in that movie that you just cringe watching. They're so brilliant. They're so brilliant. Oh, they, they, incredible movies. He had great taste, but when you hear that Kubrick was like sending letters to Steve Martin about The Jerk, which is similarly a classic, <laughs> and going like, please give me notes. How do you guys, how did you pull this off, you know? Well, I will say, I don't think Stanley really understood humor. Uh, and a right. lot of his humor He's most fascinated tends by to be- that. Right. That and also because his idea of humor is very cruel, it's very it's almost yeah. like and I love the Coen Brothers, but a lot of their humor, even though a lot of the movies has made me laugh, but when you I, I just rewatched Raising Arizona with our daughter and um she's like wow they're really mean to these people I'm like yeah like they are very cruel to their protagonists in their films. I I think if you're if you're Kubrick and you're watching someone like Steve Martin or Albert Brooks, who is able to, like, turn that criticism on themselves, make themselves the avatar of the movie. Yes. And then dissect that character that much. I think he's like flummoxed by that. Right. And that was a that was a great thing uh, from the 70s. And it kind of held over a little bit with Gary Shandling and Ricky Gervais, which is. When uh, the true comedian, when they see what's wrong with society, they don't want to be the person pointing out what's wrong. I want to play the thing that's wrong to show you maybe how that thing got to be the way it is. And if, especially if you watch Brooks, our Brooks, Martin Mull, Steve Martin, even early Richard yeah. Pryor was um, in, in Blue Collar was so good at playing what the Ugh. problem was rather than the Such hero. Such a fucking good you know, performance. Oh my God, yeah. he's so good. That's really one of my favorite movies in that decade. Yeah, that's that's like a heartbreaking Heart, that performance. Heartbreaking. It, it sort of falls into like the Sandler punch drunk love territory where you watch that movie and you're like, I wish he did one of these every four years. Yeah. I, I love that he did everything else in his career, but I wish he was able to find someone like Schrader to write such a perfect dramatic role for him once well, every four or five what's years. What's so brilliant about Adam Sandler is he really, I think he recognizes, and it, and it's hard to articulate it, because he doesn't want to be the guy pointing it out. Again, a, a true comedian like Sandler doesn't want to be the guy pointing out. He wants to personify it that a lot of male energy, especially in the 21st century, is based on infantilism and rage. And there's a lot yes. of that. It, it's kind of it's funny, but it's also sad that these guys just want to stay little kids their whole lives. And, and but at one point, you have to be dragged into adulthood, and it, the best you can hope for is to do it on your own terms. And, you know, it, there's a, you know, in, in um, uh, Big Daddy, there's a there's some really beautiful, touching moments in that film. In, in oh, the yeah. middle of a lot of goofiness, there's like 
oh, he's having to, you got to be an adult now, you know? And and so uh, Punch Truck Love is just a more direct version of that. The scene in Big Daddy where he takes him to McDonald's to get breakfast and it's Ugh. too late for breakfast and he kind of loses it in the McDonald's, right? Is not that far from like yeah. Punch Truck Love, like from his weird little no. freak outs where he's too embarrassed to be in public anymore or whatever. You know, it's that scene. I The, the McDonald's scene in Big Daddy is very wrenching for some reason. Uh, for, like I've never forgotten that scene. There's yeah. something, and in Punch yeah. Truck Love, they show you kind of where he, why he is the way he is because of his horrible sisters and the way he was raised. Right. They have that scene where he yeah. throws the chair through the window because you're like, oh, this guy was abused um, by people who thought they were just like, oh, we're just, we're just making we're jokes. Just Come on, can't, can't yeah, you take yeah. it? Can't you take a joke? And, you know, so th- there's a lot of that. I mean, he's a, he is a, um, he's a genius hiding under a lot of goofiness in my opinion. Yeah. And even Big Daddy has, you know, it's it's not as deeply characterized as the the sister stuff in Punch Drunk no. Love, but like, oh, he's got this dad looming over him who just constantly thinks he's a fucking idiot. Yeah. He spent his entire life being like, my son is dumb. Yeah. And his entire personality has built around, ah, no, I'm a dumb guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which you realize he created as a defense mechanism. Like, if yes. I'm right. which is, already, yeah. if I'm already so clownish and and goofy then the other person's going to feel stupid making fun of me like if i'm already doing exactly. it for them then then it takes away their power going back to something you brought up Patton, uh th- that this movie is coming on the threshold of like we're within five years of new hollywood starting to rear yeah, its head yeah. right and a right. big part of right. that and also a big part of like um the the Calle de Cinema guys in in Paris and everything is this sort of reclaiming of B movies of genre movies of elevating them yes. to high art, and this movie is in this very weird position where it's like a kind of it is like a psychologically lofty uh, a B movie. It is not trying to purport itself to be anything more serious. It's not trying to turn itself into white heat, you know, into like a crime epic or anything. But it just has a little more thought, a little more resonance, a little more sort of sadness, a little more craft. And when you look at the best pictures from this year, it's like all the huge epics we cited and then like melodramas or like Tennessee Williams adaptations or like, you know, biopics or the biggest like. Yeah, uh, like the Lust for Life is this year, the Van Gogh movie right right. you know stuff like that baby doll uh friendly persuasion we said uh you know bold in the brave one of hitchcock's most bloated movies uh man who knew too much is this year really Uh, yeah written on the wind you know it's like you need someone like you need someone like kirk douglas to recognize this guy is punching above his weight class right and i need to put him into a genre that they'll support a little more kirk douglas in a war movie yeah is an easy enough thing to sell but that's that's an unending cycle i think in all of the arts you always get the person who's young and scrappy and doing something amazing, and then they turn into the bloated one that the then young, the new version of young and scrappy has to come along. And, you know, so yeah. for every, um, you know, I'm sure there was a time when Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and yes, were the scrappy young rebels, you know, going against the, <laughs> the, the, the whatever the rock and roll was, but by the early 70s, they yeah. were these giant bloated, like, what the hell happened to us? And then you need the Ramones to come along to go, guys, Three chords, down, fun. Guys. Remember, remember fun? Remember yeah. how this was supposed to be fun? 
Remember when you had fun doing this? So that has to keep, that happens over and over and over again. Well, even just think about like Kiss being like a fucking statement of opposition. Yeah, and it was. At the time it was, and yeah. then it became this massive bloated, oh, okay, and then you had to have someone come along and go, no, it's this actually. You know, I mean, again, yeah. in the, all, the, all the young people coming up in the 80s, people like Bruce Springsteen and Prince and stuff, by the... By the late 80s, you know, early 90s, they'd become these bloated stadium monsters. So then Nirvana's got to come along. And, you know, it just it just right. keeps happening over and over and over again. It's the circle of life. I'm waiting for it to happen right now. But I think you see a little bit of, I mean, the whole sort of elevated horror conversation, which can get really exhausting. But what comes out of it is like a, there's now become a commercial model for people to make weirder films yes. that can get wide distribution and can actually become like a topic of discourse in the general conversation, you know? Um, where like, David, you were even just saying, we were like looking at the box office and you were like, it's kind of crazy that men has made like $8 million. Yeah, that's true. And it's sort yeah. of viewed as like a flop that that people aren't very happy with. Sure. But you were able to release it like semi-wide mm-hmm. and have it play at fucking malls and have people arguing about yeah. it yeah, in a way like, that's exciting. There's fucking people who saw that movie who will think about it for 10 years. And that's true of any of these things, right? You know, even if like 90% of people are walking out upset or indifferent, you know, there's even a movie like Men, which I like, but, you know, I thought was flawed and some people don't like whatever. Uh, But, you know, there's just enough people who are going to see it and be like, well, there was something there that I can't stop thinking about. Right. You know, maybe they want to make a movie one day. I don't know. It's also weird how like right now of all of all the streaming services and I have, you know I have Criterion, I have Canopy, Shutter. Shutter has become the place to go Shutter to see emerging rules. filmmakers. It's ridiculous yeah. how amazing that channel and they're financing stuff now. They're finding stuff. So some of their originals are just like, oh, that person's going to be a huge filmmaker. I, I think that's a great call. Yeah. But it, it's like the Corman model. There's yes. become an ecosystem that supports interesting developing yeah, like filmmakers. Here's, yes. here's a little bit of right. money. Do whatever you want. Right. You know, yeah. like no real restrictions. Yeah. Yeah. There's a movie. There's a movie that's on Shutter now called Anything for Jackson. One of the genuinely, not just scary, but brilliantly made, like, these guys are going to be amazing filmmakers. Here's a launch. The, right. You go to their IMDb, they have spent the last 10 years writing Canadian, the Canadian equivalent of Hallmark movies. All their other movies are like, <laughs> a puppy for Christmas. And, you know, Santa's, <laughs> but, and, and I, I, Wait, I I'm like, looking at Love it, in Harmony Valley. Yes. Uh, and, baby and in a manger. Jackson, yeah. Anything for Jackson is so disturbing and terrifying. And I've kind of become friends with them. They're like, yeah, we had our script for Anything for Jackson. We took it around and everyone's like, yeah, it's good. I don't, we can't really make it right. This is 10 years ago. But a friend of ours was like, this people, they're looking for quick and dirty. Can someone write? Can someone direct? And like, yeah, we need the money. And they fell into that world. Very profitable. They, they're, they're good movie makers. And then they finally, it's the same George Romero thing of, I'm just an industrial filmmaker. I've got this idea for a zombie movie. Um, if he had never made Night of the Living Dead, he still would have been a successful filmmaker. He had a very successful company. Yeah. Um, he just happened to also be an artist um, in the middle of right. being a total professional. And same with these guys who are like, we got to pay the bills. P- a puppy for Christmas um, pays off our bills. Well, I'll, I'll do it. I, right. No one else is, no one's giving us money to make anything for Jackson. And finally, thank God they got it done. 
you know, it's amazing. I, I, I love I love stories like that. If all you're looking to do is get a screenplay produced and have that experience and that credit, I think strategically the smartest move you could make is writing a TV Christmas yeah, romance film. Why not? Yeah. It's just like 60 of these are going to get greenlit <laughs> per country per year. Right. By the way, Stephen King regularly reads and recommends romance novels because he goes, romance novelists know how to tell a story and keep you moving yeah. through it. Even hit the beat. Just here we yeah. go. Here we go. And and he reads them to remind himself, wait a minute, get rid of the bloat. Let's let's tell the goddamn story here. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about the killing before we play the box office game? The one thing I wanted to mention, of course, is the clown mask that he puts on, which, you know, Nolan obviously pays homage to in The Dark Knight. Yes. It looks basically the same, the, the clown mask. But I also do mm-hmm. love that when he's putting on the... It, it, I think it's intentional. Like, he is a bit of a fool. Like, you know, it it is this oh, yeah. weird sort of double, yeah, double-edged thing of him putting on this scary mask, but he also kind of looks like an idiot. The only the last thing I'm going to mention before I hop off because I know this is a big controversy and I'm still not convinced. I'm sure you all know the um, is Rodney Dangerfield in this film? There's that big question. Uh-huh. Uh, there's right. a guy in the during the fight sequence. You can freeze the frame. He looks like Rodney. I don't think it's Rodney. I just it, don't. It's think one of those it's Rodney like, Dangerfield. You can freeze frame it, and there's a guy who's got the jaw. Yes, and he's right. got the eyes. Yeah, of, of I Rodney. would love it to be Rodney. Yes. I don't think it's Rodney. Uh, he is currently on IMDb. Yeah, I don't right. think it's him, and I want it to be him. Does kind of look like him. I mean, it's listed on IMDb, which is obviously like user submitted and edited, right? right, right as right. onlooker, uncredited. Yes. His first official credit isn't until 1968, which is 12 years after. Yes, this I, again, I don't right. think. I mean, look, Groucho Marx is listed as being in the candidate, and he's not in the candidate. There's a guy at a barbecue sure. that looks like him, and it's not him. And they put him on IMDb, and it's so not him. Right. Okay, box office game. And just one final thought. I just wanted to say, I think I would have been able to pull this off. Oh, That's yeah, of course. That's just my last thought. <laughs> you would have done it. Yeah. In and out. I think I would have been able to do it. You just know? A, little, a little gaffer tape on the suitcase. Yeah, and you're fine. <laughs> exactly. That's all Gotta I Gotta have tape on you. Uh, Pat, when we covered uh, Sam Raimi's A Simple Plan on this movie, Ben texted us and he said, if I had been in this movie, everything would have worked out and the movie would have ended with me living on a tropical island that I own. <laughs> Anytime Ben watches a, a heist movie in which people fuck it up, he believes, I no, I could have done this. I could have pulled this off. All right. Uh, I would have scored big. I'm confident. I don't know. Yeah, always. All right, so the week this came out, we're going to guess the top five, Griff, uh, of the box office. Yeah. Uh, it, this movie sort of uh, premiered nationwide in June 1956. Uh, premiered in New York a little okay. earlier, but we're doing nation. Uh, number one at the box office is probably the best movie in 1956. Maybe. Uh, it's a Western. the best movie. It's kind of a masterpiece of, 19... of the genre. The Searchers. It's The Searchers. Oh, Bingo. well done. Wow. You might beat me at this one, Patton. Number two of the box office, Griff, is a, I've, a not a movie I've seen. It's a George Cukor movie starring Ava Gardner. Okay. Um, hmm. Based on a novel, a uh, big movie, I think, kind of a hit. You're, there's no way you're going to know this. Uh, St- Stuart Granger is Is in it based it. on anything? Is it? It's a novel. It's based on a novel. The Contessa? No, you're kind of the right you know, territory. It's set fuck, in India. Fuck. It's a big like Indian Anglo-Indian epic. Came uh, the rain. Looks great. No, I'm does it have rains in the title? No, it's a it's a location. 
it's a it's a junction in fact all right the movie is called bawani junction has anyone heard of bawani oh, junction oh wow no 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 absolutely not i don't know ava gardner looks good on the poster can I, can I just circle back just for a moment it's funny to think about the searchers feels like one of those movies where you're like oh when it came out critics hated it and it flopped and right it that's sort of later through thing. this modern prism right to think of it playing as like this fat titty blockbuster yeah it was a big and, hit and, and like you it was a big it was a big hit and it like had like a Dell Comics tie-in. Like kids were fucking buying wow. the comic adaptation of The Searchers, this movie about loneliness. Um yeah, the Searchers rules. Uh I, I, yeah. Um okay, number three. I mentioned it already. It's a Hitchcock movie. I really think it's one of his worst movies. It's a let iconic movie. Man Who Knew Too Much. Yeah. Man Who Knew Too Much. It's a yeah. remake, obviously. It's got K Sarah. Uh, oh so god, that, that whole that whole scene at the end when they're singing the song that's oh my yeah. god. I oh um, god, I hate that scene so much. And like <laughs> Patton, what you were saying about stripping it down, it's like he's gonna do vertigo and psycho and you know, like he's yeah, yeah. I feel like at the apotheosis of a sort of like movie star Hollywood shit that he's gonna stop doing right after. Sometimes you have to yeah. feel the bloat a little bit to go, okay, wait a second, uh, strip all this shit down. Right. This is ridiculous. Yeah. Um yeah. So yeah, not not an amazing movie. Uh, number four, it's new this week, is a documentary film in which a guy is uh, filming the Seven Wonders of the World. Guess what it's called? The Seven Wonders of the That's World. That's right. I have never heard of this. Movie. <laughs> Why never would people do this? It's it's a it's a two hour people... movie. It's just a guy like the pyramids. I don't know. Like he's just going around. You know what? Back then it was it was a fucking novelty. It wasn't easy to travel. So like a guy it's, made yeah. a movie yeah. where he went and took pictures of him. I'll go look at those pictures. And people still couldn't get over movie cameras. I like guess. the idea that it's like Everest. You're gonna watch moving Drink it pictures. In. Uh, there was a period it, it, when they started doing the Blu-ray releases of like the Disney classics in the late 2000s or whatever. They also started restoring all these like Disney nature documentary yeah, shorts, yeah. Mm-hmm. and some of them were just like a river. Yeah. And you'd watch it, and it was just 15 minutes of river photography with, like, dramatic underscoring. And you're like, why would anyone watch this? And then two minutes later, you are captivated. Just absolutely transfixed. Um, Number five of the box office is a musical. I would say not a great movie. It's a movie that is sort of a part of what we were talking about, the sort of, like, very, very bloated Hollywood big budget picture of the time. And sort of the stuff that Fosse was was rebelling against. Right. I mean, it's a wonderful musical. No beef. It's just, it's not a particularly good movie. I don't know um, my musicals. What is it? It is Oklahoma. uh, Oh, Oh, uh, that's a great, that's a great musical. It's a wonderful musical and it's one of those things where when I was a kid, I loved Oklahoma, the musical. So I was like, can I see the movie? My mom was like, Sure, and she put it on, and she was like, "It kind of sucks." I'm sorry, like it's 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 too bad. <laughs> the only thing that's good in it is Rod Steiger plays Judd, plays the villain, and he oh. rules. He's yeah, yeah, really yeah, good. yeah. Um, that's good casting. Um, but everything, but yeah, else, I feel like no yeah. one ever talks about that movie. No, it's one of those very. It's a Fred Zinnemann movie. It's a very staid, nice looking, you know straightforward adaptation of Oklahoma that just doesn't Gloria have a lot of life. Graham, Eddie Albert, yeah, Gloria Graham, Jones, I mean, James Whitmore. Yeah. It's got good people, Gloria, yeah, yeah, obviously. Uh, but Gloria Glenn, Graham is like Adu Annie, like uh, the 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 Shirley Jones and Gordon oh. Gordon McRae are the yeah. uh, are the stars, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's that's the box office in 1956. I love an old right. box office game. 
Yeah, you've also got the lady killers in there. You got, you know, nice. uh, the man in the gray flannel suit. You got some good movies. Well, gentlemen, this was delightful. I do have to hop off. I no, Patton, so thank you. But so before much for you doing d- 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 tell us about your movie, just it's it's available right now. At, at the time this episode comes out, yes, it'll be available digitally and hopefully also still playing in theaters in some places. Yes, um, my movie is uh, called "I Love My Dad," and it's uh, written, directed, and co-starring uh, a young filmmaker. Uh, took a chance on a young filmmaker, James Morrissey. Um, just an incredible incredible talent and basically it's about a real thing that happened to him in real life he had kind of disowned his dad and blocked him on all social media so his dad created a fake facebook profile um of a hot girl to catfish him so he could stay in touch with him but he ended up falling in love with the girl and it just it is a it is a hilarious dark cringe fest you will absolutely love it um, it's streaming now on Apple TV. I've, it's still in some theaters. Um, Definitely. I really, really think you'll like it. I Very excited to see it. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for coming on the show, Patton. Oh, guys, thank you yeah. so much. Thanks for having me on. Um, down the road, in the future, there's some other big movie you want to do a deep dive on. I'm, I'm happy to do it again. This was great. Oh, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you got yes. it. No, I, you've been a dream guest for so long. If any of our listeners have not oh, yeah. read Silver Screen Fiend, uh. it is clear that you're the same sort of uh, compulsive, obsessive thinker <laughs> about all of these addict. movies and watcher. <laughs> addict. Yes, and let's uh, just I mean, say that addict. Come on. Why, why, right. why, don't dibble dabble, addict. <laughs> no, but that book is about you kind of finding a healthy relationship to movies after yes, years thank of you. true crippling addiction. Yeah, crippling is the right yes. word. Oh, my God. Yes. Wow. Right. Uh, but, but you've you've always been a dream guest because of exactly what happened, which is what I always imagined would happen if you came on the show, is all these sudden jags of all three of us going, that reminds me of this movie. Do you remember this thing of that person's That's career? what I love the most about this kind of stuff. I love it. I love those weird, yeah, the, the weird connections. Best shit in the world. We will bug you to come on again sometime. Let me let me, let me me leave you guys with one more Timothy Carey story that someone told please. me. Please. Okay. Please. Timothy Carey was originally cast on Laverne and Shirley as Squiggy's dad. What? He was going to play Squiggy's dad. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> but he got fired. Sure. The first day, I was talking to my, I was having lunch with Michael McKean. I go, how... Why did you fire Timothy Carey? He's like, we didn't want to fire him. We wanted Timothy Carey so badly, but that he would not stop farting. His whole thing was <laughs> like on command. Just no, no, not even. He's like, his whole philosophy was: the minute you have to fart, you should immediately fart, like for your health. Like he was all about that. It never he was, hold he was it. Really, so he would sit there and goes, "What's the uh, um, what's the policy on breaking wind here?" And then be like. Well, we get too late. They would just kind of go like this. And they're like, okay. And then after the first day, I think like Penny and David Lander went to, they were like, we got to get rid of this guy. He's out of his fucking mind. And they wanted him so badly. But the, the, another actor came in to play Squeak. But originally he was cast to play Squiggy's dad and he got fired for farting. That wow. is incredible. And and now a new aspiration for my own career. That's the right. limit yes. I want to test. Fired yeah. Fart whenever, whenever, when you feel it, when you, yeah. if you feel it, fart it. Don't, don't hesitate. That's going to be my new like Brando-esque test for directors <laughs> I'm working with. If you feel it, fart it. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much again for Guys, being on the show. Thank you. Everyone check out I Love My Dad. And thank you all for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you to Marie Barty for our social media, helping put the show together. Leigh Montgomery, the great American novel for our theme song. AJ McKeon and Alex Barron for our editing. Joe Bowen, Pat Reynolds for 
our artwork. You can go to blankcheckpod.com for links to some real nerdy shit, including our Patreon page, Blank Check Special Features, where we do franchise commentaries. And I think at this point, we're, we've finished up Batman and we're moving on to the Roger Moore Bonds. That's right. Ooh. Yep. Having fun. Uh, so look for that. Including what I'll just tease is, I think, a very exciting Kubrick-themed plan we have for Talking the Walk later this year. And as always, I still cannot believe that David jumped on Patton's telling of down. the Bronson Pinchot joke. I'm sorry. I, I, am, I violently refuse any apology for that. <laughs> no. I, All right, fine. I'm proud of myself.